God really is good, isn't he? All the time. Uh, I will share this. I did get uh, permission to share this from uh, Terry Jordan. I did get to go and uh, see Evelyn uh, this past Friday. And I am able to tell you this. She said, thank you for all of the prayers. And so... Uh, she is feeling uh, God moving. She is uh, feeling your prayers. She told me to say thank you. And uh, eventually, you know, when she's able to have guests, I know she will be looking forward to seeing everybody. But uh, we can praise God for that. And something else that just uh, kind of want to piggyback off of what David was saying during his communion meditation, you know, we have this theme this weekend for our ladies event. It was restored. And we see it on this arch, restored. And, you know, David was talking about his week in Vegas. And uh, one of my favorite preachers that I listened to is a guy named Judd Wilhite. And he is a preacher at uh, Central Christian Church in Las Vegas. And, you know, he's talked about in some of his books just how crazy Vegas is, you know, Friday night, you see uh, people flying in for the weekend, the party. Monday, you see the business people flying in for work. And it's like, it's crazy. All the people you see coming in and out of Vegas and all the, the sin and the, the brokenness that is in that place. And he goes, but here's the thing. It's amazing when you go to church on Sunday morning and you see people worshiping together. You see people who, ladies who used to be in prostitution. You see drug dealers. You see uh, people from gangs who are now restored, who are worshiping God together in that place. And so while they may call it Sin City, you see the grace of God, the power of God, the restoration in, of God at work in this place. And so... Um, as David was sharing that with me earlier this week, just kind of what was what he saw, I think of that and how God is even you know in a place that their motto is what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but God is doing amazing things even there, and so God is good, and He truly does restore. And so, if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, we're going to be in Numbers chapter thirteen, verse twenty-five. Numbers 13, verse 25, and uh, you could also follow along on the YouVersion app as well. And while you're getting over to Numbers 13, last week, you know, we continued on in our series that we've been going through in the book of Numbers, and we talked about the cloud, this cloud that was the divine presence of God, and it would rest over the tabernacle, and when the cloud rested, it meant that it was time for the people to camp. And that could be for days, weeks, months, longer, that they would camp in this place if the cloud was down. But when the cloud lifted, that meant it was time to move. It was time to go. And they had to be ready at any moment to move, to be ready to move and go where God was wanting them to go. And we talked about how this applies to us and the fact that there are times in our life where God calls us to move. He calls us to go and he calls us to serve and he calls us to, you know, share his word and we're called to move and, and do what it is he asks us to do. And so often we come up with all of these, I can't. I can't because I'm not a good speaker. I can't because I don't have the right background. I can't because uh, I'm too broken. I can't because of, and it's, I can't, I can't, I can't. But so often a lot of our can'ts are really, I won't. 
I just don't want to. I, I don't want to go where you want me to go. I want to do things my way. I want to live my life my way. I'm going to do things the way I want them to be done. And so we want to stay put. But then here's the other thing. Sometimes God calls us to wait. And we really don't like staying put too, do we? We don't like waiting. We want things done quick and fast and we want things done our way. And when God's timing is not our timing and we have to wait we get frustrated, we get angry, we get bitter. But sometimes it really is in the wait that we grow closer to God. It's in the wait when we stop and reflect, and it's in the wait when we go before God and, and seek His will, and, and we spend time with Him, in Him, just learning what, what He wants us to do, what our relationship with Him should be like. Sometimes the waiting, and it's, it's actually great. And it's hard to think of it like that when we're in the waiting. But sometimes the waiting is the best thing that can happen to us. And so that's where we were last week. And as we continue now to chapter 13, so they, they move out in between. They move out from Mount Sinai, and now they're going to start heading to the promised land. And with the Israelites, you know, it's simple. They're just going to listen and obey, and Moses is going to be like, okay, guys, come on, let's go, and they're going to follow, and things are going to be wonderful. Moses hasn't had one single problem yet dealing with these Israelites. Everything has been good, right? No. You know how it goes with Moses and these Israelites. They, they start out, and then all of a sudden, oh, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. And this group within the group of people, these uh, rebellious people start bringing back this. They have this craving for meat and all they see all around them is manna. It's just manna. It's always manna everywhere. Manna, it's just always manna. Where's the meat? We had meat in Egypt. And God is getting frustrated at this. And Moses is like, God, why? Uh, why are you getting frustrated? And why don't you do this? It's just... This back and forth. And there's all these, again, as usual, the Israelites, they lack trust. As soon as things get difficult, they start to lack trust. They start to forget what God has already done for them and what God will continue to do for them. And we get to chapter 13. And in chapter 13, God tells Moses I want you to send out some spies to go to the land of Canaan to, to spy out the land that I have given, that I'm already given to you. I've given it to you. And so he sends out these spies and he tells them, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring back with you some of the fruits that you find. In chapter 13, verse 20, whether the land is rich or poor and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now is the time for the season of the first grapes. And so he tells him, bring with you these fruits. And so we come here this morning and we find out the report of the spies. Hannah Moore once said that obstacles are those frightful things you see when you take your eyes off the goal. This morning I would like to replace the word goal. I think obstacles are those frightful things we see when we start to take our eyes off of God. When we start to take our eyes off of God, we, all we see are the big things in front of us, the challenges, the difficulties. And for our Israelites this morning, they are met with the news of what some would consider to be a major obstacle. 
And they are met with two options on how to handle it. And the truth is, for us, we face tough challenges in our lives each and every day. And we often find ourselves in the same position as the Israelites. And our question this morning is going to be the same. How will we choose to handle it? And so, in our text, we start in verse 26 of chapter 13. It says this, And they came to Moses and Aaron, and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. And so the spies have returned after a period of 40 days. from They've been spying out the land of Canaan. And they brought with them a cluster of grapes and pomegranates and figs. And this is important because it shows the people, this is exactly what God was saying, that this is indeed a land that is flowing with milk and honey. The soil is rich and fertile. It would produce fruits and veggies. It was agriculturally rich. But they don't just bring the good news, no. They end up bringing some bad news with them as well. They say the people who inhabit the land are strong. The cities are fortified. They're protected. They're large, very large. And also, we saw the son of Anak there. The Anakim, or Anakites, were a formidable race of giants, warlike people who occupied the lands of southern Israel near Hebron before the arrival of the Israelites. We read about it in Deuteronomy 9.2, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? The Anakim's ancestry has been traced back to Anak, the son of Arba, who is at the time regarded as the greatest man among the Anakim. And so not only did we see these giants here, but you have all these enemies there. The Amalekites who dwelled in the land of the Negeb, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites who dwelled in the hill country, the Canaanites who dwelled by the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan. Who were all these people? The Canaanites, well, they were the indigenous population of Canaan. The Amorites, they had entered Canaan from northeast Aram, or Syria, sometime before 2000 BC. They drove the Canaanites from the hill country and took up residency there. The Hittites originated in central Anatolia, or modern Turkey, about 1800 BC, slowly spread south and southeast, probably identified with the Amorites in Canaan. Nothing is really known about the Jebusites except they were centralized in Jerusalem and were also considered an Amorite group. They remained in control of Jerusalem until 400 years after Moses when David would drive them out, capture the city, and made it his capital in 104 B.C. And so these people are all here. There's giants, there's heavy fortified cities, there are large cities, there's enemies all around them. And so how will people respond? Well, in verse 30 through 33, it says this, But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, 
Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought it to the people of Israel, or they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. And so we see here Caleb, one of the spies, he speaks up and says, let's go and occupy the land. Let's just go take it. We know that we can take it. After all, this land had been promised to Abraham's offspring. In Genesis 17, verse 8, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And we see this promise throughout Moses' story. Exodus 6, 4, I also establish my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Leviticus 25, 38, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And so Caleb's like, let's just go do it. Let's just go take it. We already know that the land is promised to us. Let's just go. But then there's this tragedy here. The other spies bring a bad report to the people. And notice the phrase that's used in verse 32, the land through which we have gone to spy out. There's not a mention here from the spies on the fact that this is a promised land. This land has already been promised to them, but they don't think about the promise. They just see this land that we've gone through. And they showed the fact that this was a land flowing with milk and honey, just as God said it would be. Exodus 3.8 And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They've already brought back proof that this land is everything that God said it would be. We know that God has already promised the land, and yet all they see are the challenges in front of them. Their focus is only on their enemies, and they feel overwhelmed. The enemies are too strong for us. They're going to overcome us if we try to go after them. There's giants, there's large cities. We are small, and there is nothing that we can do comparatively. We see Caleb say, let's go do it. We see these other spies say, nope, we just can't do it. How will the people of Israel respond? You might probably already have a guess. This is what it says in verses 1 through 4 in chapter 14. It says, then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Unfortunately, the people are swayed by the bad report, and they start to rebel. And in chapter 14, the sins, the actions of the people are prominent. I mean, look at what happens throughout chapter 14. Throughout chapter 14, you see that the people grumble and complain against the Lord. Verse 27, verse 29, verse 36. 
They'll reject the promised land, verse 31. They will turn away from God and they will get beat in battle, verse 45. They will start to question God's plan, verse 3. In verse 4, they decide to find a different leader and go back to Egypt. I mean, of course, things were better there, weren't they? And in verse 10, they wanted to resort to murder. As soon as an obstacle comes up, the people lose sight of what God has done for them already over and over and over again. God has proven himself to the people and over and over and over again. Every time something difficult comes up, the first response of the people is to grumble and complain and rebel and get frustrated. So in verses 5 through 10, we see this. It says, And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Moses and Aaron fall on their faces prostrate before the assembly while Caleb And as we find out, Joshua, who is also one of the spies, they tear their clothes as a sign of grief and anger over the response of the people. But then they remind the people, look, you've already got good news. I mean, you you saw the grapes, you saw the figs, you saw the pomegranates, you've seen the good news. This is a land that indeed is flowing with milk and honey. This is a good land. And they remind the people that God has already pronounced victory over the enemies there. There's nothing they can do. They're like bread to us. All we have to go, all do is go and just trust him and obey him and listen to him and follow him. The land has already been promised to us. All you need to do is just stop rebelling and trust. He was with them. They would win. This reminder is throughout scripture. Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? But instead of listening, they decide that what they want to do instead is stone Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Caleb. But just then, the glory of the Lord appears before the people. And this is what God's response is in verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. God's not going to have this. He's not going to have this. And so he asks these questions. How long will they despise me? How long will they despise me? How long will they refuse to believe in me? Even though over and over and over I have given them sign after sign after sign and yet they still don't believe in me. All the sins in this chapter are really summed up in this word unbelief. They refuse to believe over and over and over again. They lack the faith that God was actually true to his word and over and over again they make him out to be a liar. 
We see similar words in the New Testament to those who refuse to believe in the Son of God. First John 5.10, whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Over and over and over again, they refuse to believe that God is actually going to do what it is he says he's going to do. And so God tells Moses, I'm just going to strike them with a plague and disinherit them. I'm just going to strike them with a plague. I'm going to disinherit them. I'm going to end the covenant that I've made with them. And Moses, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to make a better covenant with you. I'm going to make a better nation with you. But then in verses 13 through 19, we see Moses go before God. And on behalf of the people, he prays for them. And I'm not going to read it here, but I would encourage you to read it. He prays for them. He prays for them. He prays that God would not kill the people, lest other nations hear this and say, God couldn't get the job done. God couldn't get his people into the nation. He promised them, so he had to kill them. But verses 18 and 19 really stand out here. Actually, 17 through 19, it says this. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of, his, or of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven the people from Egypt until now. Moses prays that God would remember the covenant that he made with the people and fulfill his promise. Really, God tested Moses here, and Moses passed the test. And so we continue on to verse 20 through 25. It says this, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. Over in verse 34 through 38, it says this, According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. And so we see two very important things played out in these verses. The first thing is this, God's grace. We see the grace of God in the way that he does pardon their sins. He will allow Caleb and his descendants into the promised land. In Numbers 14.31, it says, But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. He was still going to fulfill his promise. But there's something else in these verses that we need to remember, and that's God's judgment. You see, God may give his grace, but he is also a God who is just. 
And because of the rebellion of the people, they are going to pay a very heavy price. And God's judgment plays out in two ways here. The first way is death. Death is a very real consequence here for the spies who, bought, or who brought the bad report. Verses 37 and 38 tells us the spies who brought up the bad report, who lacked belief and caused the others to continue to lack belief, died of a plague before God. But for the rest of these people, the rest of these, this generation, well, they would lose the promised land. Look at verse 22 and 23 and verse 31 again. Those who had been brought out of Egypt, who had seen signs and wonders, would not be inheriting the promised land. One year for every day the spies were out, they would now have to turn back towards the Red Sea, reversing the progress that had been made. Remember in er earlier in chapter 14 when they said it would have been better to die in Egypt or in the desert? Well, God's going to grant them their wish. You are going to die in the desert. You will never receive that promised land. Kind of reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew. Matthew twelve thirty six or 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. And even... If you think about it, even though their sins were forgiven and even though this new generation would get to inherit the promised land, this new generation, they still had to wander for 40 years. They pay the price for the previous generation's mistakes. And I wish that I could tell you this morning that was enough to change their hearts. That hearing, you know what, you are going to lose the promised land, that would change the attitude, the the thoughts in their hearts. But listen to chapter 14, verses 39 through 45. It says, When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose, up, or they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord? When that will not succeed, do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But verse 44, But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. wasn't even enough. You're not getting the promised land. In their, their grief, it says, they chose not to listen to Moses. And they pay the price for that. Once again, the consequences of that. And so, here's the question that I want us to ask ourselves this morning. When facing obstacles, do we have faith or do we have unbelief? When facing obstacles, do we have faith or unbelief? Because I don't have to tell you, you already know this this morning, that... There are going to be times in your life where things just seem really difficult. And odds just seem like they are just too much for you. The, the, the thoughts and feeling, am I going to be able to overcome this? It just seems impossible. 
So how will you choose to respond in those moments? And so there's two words here. The first one is this. Will we respond with faith? Will we respond with faith? Let's look at Caleb in this story. Twice he reminds the people that this is a land that has been proved as good and they know that God can give them this land, that God is going to give them this land. Caleb reminds them to put their faith in God's promise that God would do exactly as he said he would. They just had to have faith and they had to believe and they had to be obedient. And in those moments where it seems like the uh, the deck is stacked against us, we can choose to put our faith and trust in the one who is in control. He is in control of every situation. He is in control of all things. Psalms 9.10 says, And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Isaiah 26.4, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And you see some obstacles in our lives. It's going to be financial troubles. Maybe it's marriage troubles. And here's the, the real truth. Sometimes the obstacles people sometimes the obstacles in our life are going to be people Moses Aaron Caleb Joshua they were dealing with kind of a rebellious people were they not this week I was reading about a man named William Carey and William Carey is a man who many refer to as the father of modern missions He became a believer at the age of 18 years old, and he began to study a variety of languages, mastering languages like Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Italian, and Dutch, all the while working as a shoemaker. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but shoemakers didn't really make a whole lot of money. It wasn't the most, uh, you know, it wasn't a job that was going to make you rich. But he did that as he was studying these different languages, and he would later have a heart for ministry. And in 1799, Carey was joined by two other missionaries in Sampura, India, Joshua Marshman and William Ward. And the group became known as the Sampura Trio. In all, they started 26 churches and 126 schools. They translated the Bible into 44 local languages and developed grammars and dictionaries. They also started Medical Mission Savings Bank, a seminary, a girls' school, and a Bengali-language newspaper. But as I was reading the story of this man, William Carey, and I was listening to all the things that he was doing, there was one story that I read that really seemed pretty interesting. He once spoke in front of a group of Baptist leaders. And the story goes that there was this meeting of these Baptist leaders in the late 1700s and a newly ordained minister, William Carey, stood up to argue for the values of overseas missions. And he was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. He faced different obstacles of different times. But I'd like you to listen to the words of Mr. Carey, who said this. When I left England, my hope of India's, com- or my hope of India's conversion was very strong. 
but among so many obstacles it would die unless upheld by God. Well, I have God and his word is true. Through the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are and the examples of the Europeans a thousand times worse. Though I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith fixed on the sure word would rise above all obstructions and overcome every trial. God's cause will triumph. You see, we can put our faith in him knowing that he does what he says he will do and he fulfills his promise time and time again, over and over, he has proven it. And if we need any more examples, we can look at the life of Joshua. Joshua 21, 43, verses verses 43 through 45. Listen to what it says. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers and they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that God the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And so the question is, will we respond by faith or will we respond with unbelief? Well, we respond with unbelief. Now, let's look at the nation of Israel. God had given them signs in Egypt. He had given them signs between Egypt and here. He had given them signs aplenty. He gave them food when they needed food. He gave them water when they needed water. The spies brought back sign of good in this land, a land that would be flowing with milk and honey, just as God said. And yet, respond with such unbelief. Every time there was a sign of trouble, they lacked belief in God's plans, his promises, his provision. And so the question is, are we Caleb or are we Israel? And before you say, I just can't believe the Israelites, I can't believe it, they had all these signs and wonders and they refused to believe, what's wrong with them? Let me ask you a question. How often are we more like the nation of Israel than we are Caleb? How often is our first response when facing trials or difficult times to start doubting God, to start doubting his goodness, his grace, his provision? We start to think that God is absent. God must not really care about me. God must hate me. God must want me to suffer. And we start to throw up prayers, right? But we pray with this kind of unbelieving heart, not really believing that God is going to answer our prayers. We kind of look like the man that James writes about in James 1, verses 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But I think the story reminds us here, if we're going to choose unbelief, then we have to be aware that there are consequences. Blase Pascal once said that one half of the ills of life come because men are unwilling to sit down quietly for 30 minutes to think through all the possible consequences of their acts. Robert Louis Stevenson once said, everybody sooner or late sits down to a banquet of consequences. Well, and Paul, Paul says it like this in Galatians 6, 7 through 8. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh 
will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And when we doubt and we refuse to believe, there are consequences. And I like how in an article for Gospel Coalition, Chuck Smith writes down a list of the example of faith versus unbelief. And he says this, He says, faith will give comfort in the midst of fears, while unbelief will give fear in the midst of comforts. Faith makes burdens light. Unbelief makes light burdens heavy. Faith lifts us up when we are down. Unbelief puts us down when we were up. Faith brings us near to God when we were far from him. Unbelief puts us far from God when we were near to him. Faith brings us to the grace of God. Unbelief brings us to the wrath of God. Faith purifies the heart. Unbelief pollutes the heart. Faith brings peace to the troubled soul. Unbelief brings turmoil to the peaceful soul. Faith causes us to rejoice in the midst of sorrows. Unbelief causes us to mourn in the midst of blessings. And by faith, the children passed through the Red Sea. By unbelief, they perished in the wilderness. Unbelief can keep you from trusting the word of God and everything that he has said. It can cost you an inheritance and you would be gambling with your future to live in unbelief. And so the question is, will you live by faith or with unbelief? And so how can we live with faith? How can we live by faith in everything? How can we put our faith and trust in him and live for him each and every day and choose not to live in unbelief? Well, I think there's a couple of reminders. We need to expect trials in life. Things are going to come, battles to be fought, obstacles that will pop up around us. We should not be surprised by this. First Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Trials will come. And in those trials, we need to remember to be slow Slow to anger, slow to frustration, especially when we direct it towards God. Instead of getting angry and frustrated with what is happening with the opposition around us, slow down and remember these words from Peter. 1 Peter 3.14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. In all things we pray. In all situations, in every outcome, in every situation we pray. Psalm 86, 7, In the day of my trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. Ian Bounds says it this way, We can do nothing without prayer. All things can be done by importunate prayer. It surmounts or removes all obstacles, overcomes every resisting force, and gains its ends in the face of invincible hindrances. Remember to trust God and do what is right, no matter the situation. Put your trust in Him. 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Our God is a sovereign God, a loving God, a wise God, a God who has authority over all events. And so the question is, will we put our faith in him no matter the obstacle, no matter the trial, no matter the situation? Will we live by faith or unbelief? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up this morning. And as they do, maybe you're here this morning and you've never put your faith or trust in him at all. Maybe you've never given your life to him. 
Maybe you've never chose to, man, I've been walking away from him for so long. I need to give my life to him, put my faith, my trust in him. He is the only one that saves. You can do that today. I mentioned earlier that he loves us and that you know, we can trust him, obey him, follow him because we know he loves us and he wants what is best for us. And that is proved on the cross. Romans 5.8 says it this way, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, while we were still dead, God showed his love for us by sending his son to come and live and die on the cross for us. Because of the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, you can be reconciled to God through Christ. If that's the case this morning, I'd love to talk with you. You can come up here and talk with me. I'd love to pray with you and talk about that with you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've been going through the midst of a trial, opposition, a battle, and it feels like your faith has been on a backslide. It feels like lately you've been living more by unbelief than by faith. You've been living as though, man, God, are you really going to take care of me? Are you really going to do what you said you were going to do? Are you really going to fulfill all your promises? And you've been in a mode of doubting instead of putting faith. And this morning you can lay those things at the feet of Christ. You can come before him in prayer. Put your faith in him fully. Trust in him in all situations, all trials. And so that's the question this morning. Will you live by faith? And the one who is over all, the one who is sovereign, the one who is divine, the one who knows all things, the one who wants what's best for us, who loves us, or will you continue to respond in unbelief? The question is yours this morning. If you have a decision to make, I pray that you do so as we stand and we sing.